0: (laughs) everyone. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, bringing to you another exciting episode of Finding Peaks. Today, very excited to be talking about uh, emotional intelligence. Big topic out there on the web, good or bad in between, you'll know by the end of this episode. Joined today by Lauren Atencio, LPCC-LAC, Clinical Director, Men's Program, couldn't do it without her, (laughs) and Samantha Archuleta, LPC, LAC,
1: mm-hmm.
0: all the clinical things, primary therapist, intensive outpatient program for Peaks Recovery Centers.
2: She has all the clinical things. She has all, all the,
0: the clinical things. things. I, I thought about that because it's easy to do with, like, the chiefs in the room, but then like <laughs> now, we're, now we're moving between titles. So um, anyways, she goes by Sam, too, by the way, folks out there. We don't got to do the whole name there, but that's how that works. All right. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank busy you. Schedules, clients, chats, all the things, we get to take a little (laughs) reprieve and do a little philosophy around emotional intelligence. We love it. Because that's what it's about for me. So let's get to it, because we're disruptors as you know, all know out there, and we're gonna do some disruption here today. Or maybe not, we'll see. (laughs) Um, But emotional intelligence, it's a big topic out there in the World Wide Web. Um, When you're looking through or researching this information, you'll run into things like EQ, like emotional quotients. There are Mm -hmm. tests and strategies and ways for identifying emotional intelligence that exist out there. But we're not gonna dive into that today because uh, we think there are components of it um, that are more uh, kind of valuable to go through rather than focusing in on how, like how company systems and you know people develop employees and things like that. But I think starting with a general definition of what is hu- uh, emotional intelligence, it is the human ability to recognize, understand, even exploit and manage one's emotions in the most positive way, I guess, uh, speaking to it. So um, when you know, okay, I'm gonna get ahead of myself here. I'm getting excited. Got a little caffeine coming in this afternoon. So let's just roll with the definition. Human ability to recognize, understand, even exploit, and manage one's emotions positively. From the clinical perspective, are we onto something here?
2: Yeah, I mean, emotional intelligence is pretty much everything we deal with, right? I think the idea behind managing emotions, regulating emotions, all comes into play when you look at mental health, when you look at substance use, most of our clients are just looking for ways to control emotions or push them down, push them away, whatever it is, because a lot of the times, especially in the men program we see is there's absolutely zero insight into their emotional self and just their emotional being as a whole, right? It'll be, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm I'm angry. And it's like, okay, yeah, so tell me about the angry. I don't know. I'm just always angry. And it's so it's just really hard for our clients to identify what emotion is present. And I think that is kind of the way it is in society, right? We just mm-hmm. put these general labels on emotions. You're sad, you're happy, you're mad. You, and it's really, what does that actually mean? You know, we'll have clients walk by and they'll be like, hey, how are you today? I'm okay. Well, what does that mean? Because uh, okay is not an emotion, yeah. so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'll find that they... They really can't tell you yeah. because they are so disconnected
3: from that emotional self.
1: Yeah. So, yeah.
3: I think when I hear the idea of exploiting or controlling our emotions, it can be kind of a trigger word for people of like controlling your emotions, don't feel your emotions, process them. But when you can develop through emotional intelligence, you have the ability then to understand the emotion, which then gives you more power over it. Exactly.
2: Going yeah. into this place of, oh, I have no control over my emotions. Mm-hmm. Well, if you understand them more and not run from them, then you learn how to manage and control them. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really hard. Emotions are overwhelming. I think a lot of the clients we see they feel deeper than the normal human feels because mm-hmm. they have have these extensive trauma histories, they have these maladaptive behaviors all put in place because their emotional self is just overloaded and it takes them out of their window of tolerance so much. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we do at Peaks is just, okay, let's just get familiar. Like, sadness isn't a bad thing to mm-hmm. have. Yeah. It actually is a beautiful thing to have. Mm-hmm. So let's get to know it more,
0: mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good view of spirituality there. Like the negative uh, emotion or what are perceived as negative emotions actually can be very enlightening and build awareness. and we can uh, gain awareness around it and want, through that acknowledgement, uh, move forward in a, in a positive way. And I think you know around being sad, it's just okay to be sad sometimes. Yeah. It's just okay to be grieving. It's mm-hmm. just okay to be emotional without the what or the why. But also, at the end of the day, we don't always want to be in a position of non-knowledge and not knowing what we're going through. Um, and you know, you bring up just walking by clients every day. I mean, there's just kind of fun coming into you know, philosophy major, out of college, coming into a company culture of clinicians. That's what it's like, folks, to work around clinicians. It's like, how are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, how are you really doing? You know, and what does good mean? And all those types of things. So welcome to my world out there. Uh, that's welcome. generally how it goes. Uh, before we kind of move on, you know, we talked about it on the the past hundredth episode, um, but I think this is a common trait as well too in the world that there's uh, action, thoughts, and emotions. Right? We're going to act first; the thoughts and emotions will follow. Kind of categorically speaking, do you see this emotional intelligence thing? You know, kind of working out in the same pathology, or do you take this more from like a clinical approach to be like, okay, we're going to focus in on the emotions, out of that awareness, we're gonna go back to action, thoughts, and emotions. Or how do you see that kind of fitting within that trifecta?
3: Talk about it. I think a big part of that is the awareness that leads. Um, I actually ran a group just the other day. It's DBT focused, which a lot of this speaks to, like regulating, being able to manage the things happening, being able to process and respond in an appropriate way, is when we can be mindful and be intentional and be aware of our emotions it causes a space between the action. So if we can feel the emotion, the sensation, the emotion, pause through mindfulness, um, reflection, awareness, then we can act in a way that is more in alignment with who we wanna be, our values and our goals, which is for me, how you play out emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think
2: what I've seen a lot is emotions drive the actions and thoughts most Mm -hmm. of the time. And so we have to kind of look at all of those components in order to, kind of assess, you know, okay, so sadness is your trigger that allows for you to go out and find substances, find, you know, different mm-hmm. self-harm mechanisms, these different things, and then your thoughts kind of shame you in a way for that emotion. You shouldn't be feeling sad. You shouldn't, you should have all of these. It's the kind of us therapists call it shooting on yourself. Um, <laughs>
0: uh-huh. And so- That's shoulding.
2: shoulding. very clear, um, but it, it it all ties together in such a big way. And, and what I've seen is that the actions and thoughts are ways of controlling the emotion. Mm-hmm. If I can just have the right thought, if I can just do the right thing, then all of these emotions that I'm carrying will get just go away. But again, going in, that's not really how it works. Mm-hmm. We have to identify the emotion in order to be able to process it. And then thoughts and actions start to kind of control themselves mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. So I think they are very... Very tied together in a big way, and we definitely approach that clinically.
0: Yeah. Well, we we are, were we're uh, promised we won't dive in, and we're chatting a little bit about the old free will, decision-making power, and that type of thing prior mm-hmm. to the episode. So, if I lack awareness and insights to my emotions, uh, and out of that can't develop, you know, an appropriate action that changes thoughts and the emotions, you know, that follow, yeah. um, what would be an appropriate way to think about how to? I guess where does action make sense first? under the condition that I don't kind of have this emotional intelligence yet, I don't know how to regulate it, I'm stumbling in the world, I lost my job, I'm out of my relationship, all of these things are kind of falling apart. It seems like in those scenarios, uh, action matters. And so where would yeah. where do we, I guess just giving the viewers out there an understanding of okay, if you're dysregulated in this way, maybe the best thing we can do first is to act.
2: Yeah, 100%, it's going back to like making these little choices in order to tend to that emotion, right? Because we Mm -hmm. spend so much time running from it. The action allows for us to run, kind of going into that trauma response, fight or flight. Sadness makes me, my trauma response go off and now I am going to run away from it as fast as I can. That's the action. If we can teach them on the other hand, hey, you don't have to run away from it because this isn't actually a temporary feeling. This is actually Mm -hmm. something that will be resolved then it allows for space for them to implement more action in order to find some emotional regulation skills in a big way.
3: Well, and I think prior to the episode, we were talking a little bit about how it takes an action to kind of instigate the rest of the change. And I think it takes that discomfort in self, like when we're tired of being sad, tired of being angry, tired of being those things, we are able to then say, I need something different. Mm-hmm. And that decision to make a different choice or say, "I mm-hmm. even out loud, I just need something different. That's an action in itself to then keep getting the help and making better choices.
0: Mm-hmm. Act on, just make a phone call. Act mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. reaching out to a friend for help. Act on, I'm gonna call a counselor today. And, yeah. Right. And
2: as small as like, go for a 10 minute walk outside. Like right. mm-hmm. I was saying even um, right before this, like we'll have clients sometimes like where I'll be like, just be nice to yourself for 10 seconds, right? Like just Mm -hmm. little tiny things. I think we get so caught up, especially with emotions on this big picture. Like I'm going to be able to manage this and I'm going to be happy, but it really just, it requires you to do little tiny action in order Mm -hmm. to get to the big goal you're kind of seeking
0: out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it uh, too. We kind of did the whole episode for the viewers (laughs) out there prior to coming on about this, but, um, uh, the The concept of and, and we and i 've talked about this on several past episodes now, but how dopamine essentially works and, and, and what biological mm-hmm. structures and systems are trying to do is exist within homeostasis right that we are to be content sort of in the middle so when um, we experience pain, the dopaminergic effect or homeostasis trying to lead to some pleasurable state that balances it all back out until we 're you know content again and then you know, kind of the problem with drug use, right? The reason it almost works is because it gets us that great pleasurable state, but if the, if the biological system is trying to return it back to homeostasis, we're gonna start experiencing pain along the way, and that's, you know, you know, insert there, you know, of course, tolerance and all of these things that take place in drug use, but it, it really starts to make sense, and I just wanna highlight that because so much of feeling pain for us, because it, it is so miserable to be in those moments of suffering, it feels like the world or our situation should just be this state of kind of happiness on the other side. And um, but that doesn't strike me as the goal through biological systems. But just curious, from that clinical perspective, um, how we could share or reinforce maybe that view with the viewers out there?
2: Yeah, kind of like I was saying before, is like. We have a lot of clients come in and they're like, I just wanna be happy. And I think that is such a broad statement. We can't just all be happy all the time. Like it goes back into the idea of contentment. I wanna feel content to the point where if I do feel happy, I can embrace it. And if I do feel sad, I can also embrace it. But having this idea that happiness is this attainable place is something that is just not realistic and it's impossible. And so if you are on your mental health substance use journey and you're like, my goal is just to be happy, That expectation is just never going to be met or that goal is going to be never met. And then it
3: takes us into a place of I'm right back down where I was because I feel so discouraged.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, and I think in moments when we're our clients start to heal and feel happiness again, even moments in births that come down back to homeostasis is very hard because they're like, oh, no, I'm getting bad again. I'm getting sad again. I'm getting depressed again. So then reverting back to old patterns becomes easier because those neurons are stronger they've it's been a pattern for x amount of years and being able to grab the skills that we teach that self-regulation those other things first is something that i think we try to teach in our curriculum both inpatient and outpatient of let's try to grab these other skills first these new skills that we give you yeah yeah
2: and really normalize it mm-hmm. like normalize emotions in general like hey man you are going to feel sad i, I you know i had a client left recently and He was like, I just feel so good. I've never felt this good in my entire life. And I was very honest. I was like, that's going to change. At one point in time, Mm -hmm. you are not going to feel this good. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do when that happens? Because I'm not saying if that happens, Mm -hmm. when that happens. Because it's just an inevitable thing. I think last time we were on here, um, Clinton talked about the idea of like, we live in this life um, and then this world of like shame and it's just sad a lot, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And so I think you do have to be realistic when it comes to emotions, because if you're not, then you're always going to be let down and you're always going to be so fearful of what's next. Yeah. Goes into the control conversation as well. Mm-hmm. There's so much fear in emotions because we don't know how to control them or they're so unknown. And it's, it's really just something that's within in, inside us that if we go into those small actions, it'll teach us how to control it more. Absolutely.
0: It reminds me of the, uh, I'm gonna antagonize this because it just keeps coming across my desk, the bro science of cold plunging at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You're doing something that's causing a dopaminergic response of pain, so the reality is it's gonna take you to the other side of pleasure. Mm -hmm. My problem with it, regardless of the sciences of it, is it, again, is gonna take you back to homeostasis. And again, we continue to externalize strategies. And how many times as a society do we have to mess with our dopamine structures to recognize how poorly the outcome continues to be at the end of the day when we're swinging it from one side of the fence to the other over and over and over again when the reality is just to kind of sit in the middle and be content. And that's sort of my transition here from the external to the internal world of our emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And we're going to dive into the components of it now, folks out there. So for all you uh, cold plungers out there, keep row (laughs) sciencing it forward. Uh, And uh, finding peaks at peaksrecovery.com, information on finding peaks, however, reach out to me, tell me how frustrated I just made you because I want to talk about this. <laughs> he um, really does. <laughs> <laughs> just eager inside. I'm trying to ag- antagonize you all out there to be like, you know what, Brandon, if you say cold plunging stupid one more time, uh, bring it. I would love to talk about it. Um, or if you're super passionate, about, we would love to have you as a guest on here so we can, we can do this together. Um, so there are five components. There, there's kind of a, like, uh, you know, Samantha, you did their kind of some research into this as well too. Yeah. There are, I ran across other five components, you know, they're all along kind of the same lines, but these were the most consistent ones i found. So I'm not trying to speak to all of its components, but the five ones that came up in particular were uh, of emotional intelligence were self-awareness, self-regulation, internal motivation, intrinsically speaking, empathy and social skills. And so, you know, what what I think is valuable for us and what we're trying to do, because we're not gonna talk about the quotients or the tests or those types of things that exist out there, but these sort of things, I think we commonly work through within a clinical setting uh, and uh, certainly across the organization i think trying to promote you know wellness on behalf of each other as a staff but starting with self awareness you know we were talking about uh, kind of the beginning of the episode and the challenges around choice Um, you know we're not going to antagonize the free will thing here too much but it seems like Okay, I made a choice because I lived in harsh circumstances or the world told me or kind of causally drove me in this way. I took drugs and alcohol to cope with the world that I was living in. I didn't know what was going on. I end up in a place like Peaks Recovery Centers. Now I'm doing clinical work and I gain awareness about the condition and what led me to that in that moment. And for the viewers out there for another episode, that's where I would start to antagonize. I think we got a lot of choice decision making power because once we gain awareness, responsibility starts to insert itself. Uh, in that regard but achieving self-awareness or self-regard self-actualization or emotional self-awareness is not just like immediately available like my phone is here (laughs) uh, for a lot of people at the end of the day so you know as a component um, you know clinically speaking um, is this the first it it feels first-steppy to me kind of in a clinical approach but I don't want to draw too much on the cards here, Um, what is your perspective of self-awareness and where do you see that really starting to come in as a component of emotional intelligence? It seems to be highlighted highlighted as the first, Mm -hmm. so it seems like the priority.
2: Yeah, I I might be a little biased here too. Um, So Sam, I have a little bit more, but I I am definitely an insight therapist. I really, really, really strongly believe in Mm self-awareness because I don't believe that if we don't have some kind of self-awareness, then there is no motivation or kind of almost ability to change, right? I think mm-hmm. there's so many different behaviors that we display when it comes to emotions that we think is, this is normal. Like I, I'm i supposed to just cry and lash out when I'm angry and I'm supposed to like do all of these different things. And and really what I I agree with in that statement that I think awareness is the first step, because as long as I have awareness to know oh, I lash out and freak out because that's how I've protected myself my whole life mm-hmm. is that when I get angry, people leave me alone. And so once I find awareness there, I can then say, you know, okay, I'm going to practice not lashing out. If I do, how do I wrap back around in order to start to change these behaviors for me? I, I, again, am huge on self-awareness because that is the only way we move forward and it's the only way we kind of find that motivation to say, okay, I'm not bad. I just have different behaviors that served me in the past and now they just don't. And so
3: now I have to learn what's going to serve me today. I actually totally agree with you. And I think emotion-focused therapy is a good place to like speak on this a little bit is when we ask clients, how are you doing? Or when Brandon got here, we said, how are you doing? And he paused and thought about it. And I think that's what we talk about when we talk about emotional intelligence, being able to pause and say, okay, this is kind of where I'm at. And actually where I'm at, what my body feels. We often talk about sensations with our clients because they can get in touch with the warmth of anger, but maybe not the anger and why it's there. So if we can get to the warmth, we can get to the anger, to the sadness, to the feeling left out or frustrated. And we can get to those other things when we can get in our bodies.
2: I think the other part of this is that people have become so scared and you know, intimidated by their emotional self that awareness has actually just gone off the table because Mm -hmm. in order to bring awareness into the conversation would mean that you would have to feel this, this stuff. And so not having awareness is almost kind of easier at times because it's like, okay, well then I don't really have to know all of these parts of me and I can't change that and all of these different things. So,
3: well, and I think we can change behavior without changing that but it's not sustainable. Right. So we can change the behavior. I don't want to lash out when I'm angry, so I'm going to go isolate. Well, that's probably not also the healthiest for you. And so we get back to anger and we kind of toggle between those two because there's not the intrinsic awareness yeah. of what's actually happening for you or why it's coming up or the history of it. Yeah.
2: Well, I think too, like there's some personal responsibility in there as well, right? I think we've, we've talked, I think we talked a little bit about that before is this idea that like, Peaks is 30 to 45 days. You know, Samantha, Lauren, like we're all not going to be there when you leave. Like Mm -hmm. there has to be... That awareness there. So, when you go home and you're talking to your wife and you notice yourself starting to shake because you're getting so anxious, aware the conversation's going, you can't just run to the office and be yeah. like, hey, Lauren, yeah. what's, mm. what do I do? You know, like there has to be, okay, so this is what I've learned about myself. I get nervous in confrontation. Confrontation was never displayed in a great way for me. And so, therefore, they might have to take a step back and utilize some of those tools, but there has to be some personal responsibility again in actually taking action in that.
0: Yeah. A big, a big piece that we didn't, uh, I the host, I'll be clear, did not introduce <laughs> in the beginning was emotional intelligence is just not internal awareness, but also um, awareness of the emotions of the individual in front of you. And so yep. insert family work here as well yes. too, right? Mm-hmm. And prioritizing that. And so we need to not only be internally self-aware but you know under that uh, scenario you gave where you know i brain and leave treatment and now i'm in front of my wife something's escalating or whatever and i'm getting anxious you know what's going on the person on the other side and this is the i think the big piece of family systems and, and just want to roll through and hear your, hear your both your thoughts on it is that person needs to know when they're at the same time triggering emotions and and building that up and, go, and maybe what do we do in a moment like that? And so one, maybe let's just reinforce like family systems. And when somebody goes to treatment, many of us have to learn along the way what we're going through because on the other side of it, for as much as we were trying to get the person into treatment, you know, we often discover through a treatment episode that family systems have a lot to do with the anxiety, the buildup, the rejection, the feelings, um, all of that sort of stuff. And so uh, it feels right-sized, I think, to just kind of insert it at this time and uh, encourage for the viewers out there strategies around family systems fulfilling sort of this emotional intelligence as well too and not just leaving it to the individual
2: yeah you know we get a lot of clients who come to treatment they feel so much better and now they're gonna help their family feel better they're gonna change Mm -hmm. their family Mm -hmm. they know exactly what their families need to do now in order to help with their emotion and then and it becomes difficult because this is where we what i've discussed with clients is like you only have control of what you have like are doing you can't make them do anything you can't force that Um, and so there has to be again some awareness and emotional intelligence of why am i getting anxious in this moment with my wife or why do i why am i falling back into people pleasing behaviors and it's because that we feed off of those emotions so much with our family and so there has to be you know like we do offer family sessions within treatment residential treatment and iop um, in order to kind of solidify communication. And, and one thing I always tell um, families is that like, we're gonna stay stuck in the context forever. You guys just need to say how you're feeling because it's like a lot of, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. And it's like, okay, why? Why can't he do any of those things? Well, cause I'm scared. Okay, we can work with your scared, but we don't work well with, you can't do these things. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if
3: you are No, I think to add to that, it's the empathy piece, which I think is a pillar on this or one of the five main and having empathy and being able to say like, Brandon clearly looks uncomfortable in this and or Samantha's clearly uncomfortable. Like I can take up more space or I can take up less space or whatever that other person might need because you've taken the time to be vulnerable, share the feelings, do the emotional awareness, regulate yourself and then you can help and support that in another person as long as both people are willing and able to do that piece, which I think is where our family programming our family sessions and all of that can help the client go back into the best environment possible.
2: Yeah, and they have to change the way they show up mm-hmm. in the environment as well. Like there has mm-hmm. to be recognition of, okay, I can't get angry with my wife because um, you know, she gets triggered and I get triggered. And so how are some skills we can use to say, hey, I'm, I'm feeling angry. I'm gonna go take a walk. I'm gonna go do these different mm-hmm. things. In order to not just like have this huge emotional blow up and then separate and we just go right back to our maladaptive behaviors and no change occurs Mm -hmm. moving forward
0: absolutely i (laughs) as we were talking about before the episode (laughs) i want to go back to that moment of the first time you show up in the family system you know that Mm -hmm. idea like i go to treatment i go home things are escalating with wife and i'm going to put forward hey, I'm experiencing anger and I'm gonna talk about this because that's what I was taught to do in this moment. But I I wanna honor, just like stepping on a treadmill for the first time, just like going to the gym for the first time, just like going to clinical for the first time, just anything for the first time that requires more work on the other side of it, uh, as we were talking about, the kind of the first emotional feeling is like, stupid.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Lauren
0: got me all worked up in treatment. I was able to do it one-on-one, like open chair. Like, hey, <laughs> now I'm sitting with open chair. Like, I'm going to read through my list here, and I'm going to tell you how my feelings are, and now it's real life. And I just want to honor that aspect of self-awareness, that the moment we get the courage to actually do something that we've now become aware of, there's a tendency for which it feels silly and worthless. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it's a societal, Maybe you know. maybe it's a an American issue, you know, I don't know, but there is that sort of first impression of like, this feels dumb mm-hmm. and I wanna yeah. honor that.
2: Yeah, yeah. especially skills, right? Like I think I'll give clients some skills sometimes, like I'll be like, okay, I want you to write down affirmations and it's like, uh, okay, how is I am strong gonna help me? You know, mm-hmm. like I don't really understand, but I, but I think one thing that we need to consider is that we as humans, we get in routines and we have behaviors that are routine based and So if I don't go to, or if I'm not used to confronting my wife about something, then that's not gonna be the easy thing to do, but we have to continue to practice new behaviors in order to kind of fire new neurons in our brains in order to
3: make it a habit instead of just something I do occasionally. Mm -hmm. Rewiring that feels really important because, and no one, most people, the first time you try something new, you're not gonna be great at it. I'm not gonna shoot a layup the first time I go try if I haven't played in 15 years. But I am gonna know kinda of what to do. I know the skills, Lawrence told me how to dribble, so if I just push it up, that's that's the next step in this. And keeping practicing it, eventually I'm gonna be able to make that layup easily. And that's very similar with these skills. They just, I think, feel a little scarier because it's all happening internally. Well, it's all up to them, mm-hmm. right?
2: And then. I think you see clients who struggle with that anticipatory anxiety so much that I saw this um, thing on Netflix where like they showed a monk and like a normal person get burned by something. And the normal person (laughs) um, felt more pain right before the prick of the burn. Um, because their anticipation was causing the pain to happen. Mm-hmm. And the pain of the burn was actually less than the anticipation of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another thing is that when we're not very aware of our emotions, we don't feel like we can you know, manage them in the way that we, that makes us feel comfortable, is we start going into our thoughts, catastrophizing, all or nothing, Making something, you know, I'm gonna go have this conversation with Brandon and he's probably gonna fire me, and, da, 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 and it's mm-hmm. like, no, there's, it's not gonna happen. Yeah. And most of the time, the conversation goes better than we even expect. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Absolutely. so that's hard too.
0: Yeah. I also have no power to do that in company culture. So. Well, um, Clint is more powerful than I am. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, and I feel that sometimes he boxes me out. He's like, Brandon, I got this. And like, well, I want to, get I in on fire this Lauren. too. <laughs> you know, I want to fire somebody. Let do me some do it. That. Yeah. Um, I love, I love the place we work. I think we have such a great culture. but oh, I'm yeah. glad mm-hmm. we can haha about CEO firing people. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Especially Lauren. Yeah. Yeah, especially Lauren.
2: (laughs) If Glenn and Jason were here right now, they would love it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, So so self-awareness, we gain it or we're nurturing it, we're moving toward it. Why? Because we want to continue to make right choices in the world, right? Mm -hmm. I can't make the right choice when I'm emotionally burdened or I don't understand why I'm responding in the way or reacting in the way that I do. Through awareness, I can gain in time, incremental moments of confidence for which allows me to better take a step back and finally go, you know what, I'm not gonna flip the person on the the road off right now. Uh, I'm actually okay with where I'm at, the person probably didn't even mean it, and I just can't wait to get to work and get a coffee. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but it's uh, progress, not perfection, and it's certainly directional. Um, And we'll get into the internal motivation and choice about it. But, uh, so next step, self-regulation, or we can perceive it as self-management namely managing emotions, problem solving, reality testing, impulse control. I think in the clinical sense of things, it feels right to me that, you know, because we're not in the world, we're in treatment, we're doing reality testing. What is it like to be in front of mom? What's it like to be in front of brother? Who triggers the most? Those types of things. Um, But now that we have awareness around the condition, we need to figure out how to regulate those emotions. We've kind of glossed over it a little bit through the prior uh, element, but uh, let's do the, the deep dive on self-regulation here, um, starting with whoever's most passionate.
3: I know, we both looked at each other and she passed it. I think I think of um, the depression cure and our DBT skills of the ability to regulate our, our physical body, then when we get in those instances, our physical body's already more close to homeostasis. So it's harder to get to those escalated pieces because we're so close to homeostasis already. Our body wants to stay there and it lets us stay there. So if we're getting enough sleep, exercising, if we're able to self-evaluate, those things allow for kind of the pause that's necessary before the behavior again. And that's the regulation piece that I try really hard to talk to clients about and allow them the space to take that pause and figure out what's happening.
2: I think it goes into that kind of saying too of like feelings are not facts like Mm -hmm. you can't make decisions you can't put all of your money into this emotion and and what's happening with you and you know that because you're sad you're going to be sad forever like there has to be some awareness even around going back to our thoughts how am I challenging my thoughts and, and welcoming my emotion I think the the silliest thing we do sometimes is just tell clients like you just have to feel it you Mm -hmm. know and and that sometimes is like i what Uh, what does that even mean like clients don't know how to feel their emotions most of the time and so going into this idea of just like go back checking in how am i feeling right now okay i'm triggered what triggered me okay they talked back to me, you know, the group isn't welcoming me as much as I want. And in mm-hmm. understanding, okay, sadness is a is a legitimate feeling when you're rejected. So let's just embrace that legitimate feeling and see how we move through it together. See how we implement DBT mm-hmm. skills, implements even CBT skills to notice how our thoughts are kind of pushing our emotions in certain directions as well mm-hmm. and, and really getting into a place, again, this just goes into self-awareness of like, I know when I'm anxious, my chest gets tight. I start to, you know, get hyper vigilant with things. My thoughts start going crazy. And so I just have to take a second and really evaluate what's actually going on with me, because if I just assume what's going on with me, then I am going to make a decision to fix it based on an assumption. And that is not going to work because most of the time the assumption is incorrect.
0: Absolutely. When I think about like regulation, and and I think this might be of value to the viewers out there, you know, we we t- I think there's a tendency for people to think about I'm going to regulate the whole thing versus like just the parts as we move through it. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, as somebody who enjoys running out there in the world for my movement, my exercise, my my physical wellness. Um, the first kind of jumping on a treadmill or just running in general, the experience is like, the world tells me I gotta go really fast. I gotta compete well. I gotta be the best that I can possibly be. And there's this defeatedness that really comes in. And ultimately, what I've learned about running is like low heart, you know, uh, heart rate zone training that it's actually really beneficial for us to be just moving at a very suppressed heart rate. And over time, that's gonna lead to a better runner than a runner who's just constantly shooting their heart rate up into anaerobic activity and you know one of the things that's challenging that I, I kind of i learned from very simple statements like this guy somewhere out there in the world smarter than me said uh when you're running you have to remember it's you're running at your pace and then the person next to you running in front of you behind you whatever are on their own running sort of journey nice. that's challenging for me to hear right away because if somebody passes me when i'm running even though i should be like regulating my run in lower heart i'm like you know i gotta get that person i'm gonna catch mm-hmm. up to him and all that type of stuff but So there's an energy in which, like, I'm talking about here that it's difficult to regulate, even in moments of what feels positive, to just be slower than the person running out in front of me where the uh, intensity is to, like, kind of want to catch them. Um, And that was just a process for me in a very basic principle of the world, uh, such as running. And so I just want to honor that regulation um, takes place in time. And it's not regulation of the whole. It's regulation of the parts that leads Mm -hmm. to a better whole. Yes kind of just stalty there, I don't know.
2: Love it, Yeah, I was on point though. (laughs) And it
3: makes so much sense when you look at that piece of, I need to regulate this moment and these smaller pieces, because that does lead to the whole piece. And when you're running the way that you run now, the whole piece is more regulated and then we can elevate and practice it again and do the same things and keep elevating what that looks like and increasing our EQ or emotional
0: intelligence. Beautiful. Beautiful. Sam gets a mic drop. Yes. (laughs) Yes. All right. <laughs> uh, third component: internal, intrinsic. It's internal motivation, but we're thinking intrinsic, like it's, it's uh, versus extrinsic, right? Extrinsic just being external to the situation. I'm motivated to do something because I want to go to this concert, you know, type thing. Versus it's within me, and that's what's driving it. But I think, um, you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation around self-awareness, like we externalize strategies for internal wellness and we need internal strategies actually to navigate the external world and so to think about internal motivation intrinsically uh, makes sense here as a driver versus extrinsically so i don't know if the viewers i don't know if that's important to you guys out there but it just felt important for me to share it with you uh, but the idea here is to drive to improve achieve and change uh, action amid opportunities and creating optimism and resilience sam at the beginning of the episode I target mm-hmm. you here because you were like hey it's not always easy to be internally motivated about <laughs> yeah. situations. Um, but I think under the, the frame for, framework here for which we're building it up, as an internal motivator, um, it might be difficult to achieve like maybe the thought around, okay, um, I, wanna, I just wanna be a better uh, parent. It could be an internal motivator, but just because you have the thought doesn't mean the action's gonna follow. And so just wanna honor the challenges here of this, but um, it is with it.
3: I think a lot of motivation can be difficult, and I look at clients that come to us depressed and really um, feeling unable. Like I have this desire to be a better parent, to be a better spouse, and I don't know how. Like I don't know how to get from point A to point B. And we talked a lot about the motivation can be in the action of asking for help or those little things we talked about earlier in the episode, and that's where I can buy into like motivation being possible for people, even when it feels impossible, it's the smallest thing and being able to recognize that, um, yeah.
2: I think too, like so much, I think it's just the society we live in, but I think so much internal motivation is external. Like when you Mm -hmm. say like, I wanna be a better parent, most of the men who come through our men's program, what that means to them is that they're making enough money to provide a home Mm -hmm. and food, they are, Um, making sure that they're paying for all their kids like it's all of these it's kinda like that idea of if I meet this standard if I am the best dad I'm gonna be the best provider the best husband all of these different things if I meet that then internally, I'm gonna fix myself. Internally, Mm -hmm. I'm gonna feel better. And we've had so many clients come in, they're like, I've achieved everything. I have got Mm -hmm. the best job, I've got my dream job, my dream car, my dream wife, kids, all of these different things, why do I still feel so bad? And that's where you really have to take it and say like, hey, yeah, external things aren't gonna help you Mm -hmm. unless you're internally kind of self-aware and able to understand that I can engage in any emotion because my life externally as well. Mm-hmm. But if you are looking for external things to make your internal self motivated, then that's just always kind of going to let you down in mm-hmm.
0: a way. Yeah. Uh, back to my running examples, because uh, it's the way that I um, understand like intrinsic motivation. For me, what's valuable about running is that it's, to, at least for me at 38 years old, it's one of the few sports out, like I can't just pick up a basketball tomorrow and start, you know, doing LeBron James stuff. Uh, that's impossible. That takes a career and a lifetime, it feels like. Uh, running uh, at the Kipchoge levels, right? The, 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 the Olympic uh, marathon uh, athlete, and I mean, he's just awesome out there. Um, he runs a two hour, nearly flat marathon time. I'm not trying to be Kipchoge in my running that would be sort of an external, you know, kind of measurement of that. But I do know, intrinsically speaking, um, I can compete at the highest level for myself within that framework. And that's what's motivating for me, like just the idea of crossing the finish line. And, you know, I finished a marathon, the last one I did in three hours, nine minutes, it was 18 minutes faster than the prior one. Um, But when I crossed that line, and it's fun being in races like that, and there are people cheering, but it was really just me at the end of that, situation and Mm -hmm. it just felt good that I had accomplished something that I had moved my goal in the right direction and then I am competing at a higher level and enjoying you know kind of the experience alone so there's a lot of external stuff happening within running uh, but at the same time the motivation at the end of the day to get out of the bed and do a six mile run um, it has to be moved intrinsically otherwise you know to me I would have fallen on my face if I thought I got to do this two hour time thing
2: I think that that fits perfectly. And if I'm looking at it from a clinical sense, I I think about our empty chair process. I think Mm -hmm. when within our grief and loss week and we do the empty chair process, we ask the clients to feel big emotions. And these are emotions that they have not wanted to feel because they're scared of them. They feel like they'll never get out of them. And it is, they internally are motivated. Okay. I'm going to sit in this chair and I'm going to do this stupid activity with you and and all these things. (laughs) Right. And then, and then they have this big release. Like, I'm feeling grief, I'm feeling sadness, I'm feeling anger, I'm, you know, everything is coming up. And then after you ask, hey, how are you feeling? I feel so light, mm-hmm. right? It's like, okay, you're so scared to face this one thing, but you actually just proved to yourself you could do it because you got internally motivated to sit there, open up, be vulnerable. And on the other end, you're alive. You came out and you did it. And then I think, what I find it, it it does help with the internal motivation of like oh wait maybe I can do these hard things called emotions and maybe I can move through um the death of my parent or you know the the lost time I have because of my addiction like it, it really kind of puts it in their face to say oh I can do this.
3: Mm-hmm. When I think of that I to not exhaust self awareness it has to go back to self awareness and I think in our residential and our IOP program were constantly going back to self-awareness to show like, okay, I did this scary thing that was confronting Lauren when I thought she heard my feelings to prove that I could do the thing. And it builds up to these more difficult and bigger emotions to keep proving yourself that it's okay and it's gonna be okay and you're okay. And when you do that, it allows for the whole your whole system to be able to continue to take those steps, run the next marathon, get up in the morning and run that six miles because you just did three you could probably do three more. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and on the parental front too. It, I, I it's you know, when I said I was like, that's a true intrinsic, you know, internal motivator, but I can see how it can be immediately externalized, mm-hmm. you know. And I think about, and under those conditions, I think about, um, like, I, in my role at least at Peaks, like when Chris Burns and Bobby Pat come to my office and like, hey, what's going on with this or whatever, right? And those moments, like what I rely on is just like what my truth is about the situation. Um, and it's kind of a facetious example, but in generally speaking, we're not always going to make the right decisions. right? But mm-hmm. I know at times when I don't make the right decision at work or within my relationships, generally speaking, I was doing it from a place of like wholeness and yeah. trying to do the best that I can. So when I think about the best parent out there, I think about somebody doing the best they can with the tools and insights that they have for that situation. And ways to keep it intrinsic would be like, hey, son, I want you to know like, I love you dearly, and it sounds like you know, I did something wrong here that frustrated you, but I just want mm-hmm. you to know I'm trying my best, and out of this now, I at least know how I can arrive at this better without thinking about it like, oh, I gotta make the most money to provide for my family. Under the conditions and situation that I am, I'm gonna do the best that I can. Mm-hmm. And that's the motivation, right?
2: Definitely. And also just being a role model, right? Like knowing because of the internal motivation I have, my son is now gonna grow up and he's gonna find internal mo- motivation to ask for help, mm-hmm. to know that his worth isn't defined by his salary. These different things that you can actually, you know, break that generational trauma chain, mm-hmm. whatever it is, is like, okay, I'm gonna be self-aware, internally motivated, and the people around me are going to see that and hopefully follow,
1: mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. maybe. maybe.
0: Maybe, <laughs> possibly, Choice. if we keep working on it. All right, diving through the list. Empathy is the fourth, seeing a situation from another's perspective, uh, the old golden rule, doing others as you would have you know done unto you. Uh, but empathy is, I think, important one in family systems for an individual certainly who's struggling, but for individuals themselves as well too. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy as emotional states. Um, let's get into it. What are your emotions about empathy?
2: <laughs> I think one thing that we find is clients lack a lot of empathy and compassion for self. So it, it kind of really shuts them off to kind of understanding emotions, not judging emotions. You know, you'll hear clients say, oh, I was the, the worst person in the world when I was drinking, or I was worthless when I was depressed. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, wait, so you were in pain. Let's talk about your emotion. Let's talk about that you were in pain, you didn't know what else to do, so you drank in order to manage the pain because you have absolutely no idea how to manage this pain. And it has to kind of go be twisted around in that way of like, hey, you are not wrong. You're not a bad person. Sure, maybe some bad things happened, but that is because your emotional intelligence wasn't kind of within the self-awareness place, right? Of to say, oh, I can manage this, I can I can move mm-hmm. through this. No, I can't. And so there has to be some empathy in the sense of too, like understanding experiences. Oh, I lash out because that was the way I protected myself. Okay, we can find empathy for that. You don't have to beat yourself up for lashing out every time. Let's just figure out why you do it and let's not judge it anymore. It goes into like the Brene Brown stuff of no emotion is good or bad. like They're just emotions. And the fact that we label them good or bad
3: makes it so we judge ourselves more.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. I also think with empathy and that idea of being able to interact with others, I think that's a big part of emotional intelligence. And when I can have empathy for myself and the things I've been through, when Lauren lashes out at me, I can say, ooh, that wasn't about me. And that was hers. And we get to sort of, we talk kind of Whose side of the street is it? I can clear my side of the street and also leave her side of the street where it's at for her to do her work on without taking it personally or feeling like a bad parent or a bad friend or whatever it is. It allows for the separation with the empathy and compassion still present.
0: And I think empathy is an important thing to acknowledge here within emotional intelligence. I didn't do all the studies and put this together, but it feels right sized. I just want to bring forth, you know. My high school girlfriend uh, broke my heart. Mm-hmm. And what happened in that moment is I go to my buddies and I'm like, hey guys, she broke my heart. Can you believe that? Tears. And they were like, screw her, dude. You can do so much better. You can do all this. And it feels like slipping into sympathy. And it also, for me, mm-hmm. created like a victimhood mentality that she wronged me. I don't have any part in this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Upon reflection, I had a lot to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> <There> Self-awareness. <laughs> in, that, in that moment, right? But it, I, I think uh, I think a lot of our strategies and friendships are we find ourselves in sympathy land, and it yes. creates victimhood. And I just want to address that or talk about or get your in- clinical insights into it because we can steer off the path quickly from empathy here. Empathy, to me, would have been a friend stating, hey, man, I recognize you really broke your heart, and that sucks, and I see your pain, and I'm a witness to it. Yeah. Um, but I can't sit here with you in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as your friend... Like I'll hang out with you tonight, but what are we gonna do moving forward to like move on? Because you gotta know your value, Brandon. Like you're a good dude, you look okay as a person. Let's like, let's get out there and, and buck up a little bit and figure it out from there. So friends don't always have the best sort of language, but the true friends in my life are the ones that held me accountable to my situation. And that felt like empathy versus sympathy.
2: Or even like holding space for that emotion, right? I think the one of the biggest issues with emotions is that we, are, we live in a society that says, if it's broken, fix it. Okay. emotions are you're broken and so what do we do we want to fix it oh screw that girl let's go hey, hook you up with this girl over here you know like we have to fix it's it's so uncomfortable for me that mm-hmm. you're sad that I want to fix it I don't want you to be sad anymore right mm-hmm. and then that just goes into the narrative of like hey you're not allowed to be sad because it makes people around you uncomfortable right mm-hmm. and so being able to have empathy of like yeah I, I see you're sad like let's just sit here like let's just you know, let's go for a walk. Like, we don't even have to talk about it. Like, but we have to stop trying to fix emotions because those are just things that we shouldn't have to fix. It's natural.
3: Yeah. I agree with that. And then with accountability piece, having the idea of let's hold this space for now. And then when we've moved through this motion and we feel more regulated, we've been able to work through it. How do we then become accountable? And I think there's a almost a detriment when we bring them too close to each other and being able to keep them a little bit separate. Like you said, like tonight, we'll sit here, we'll do this, and then tomorrow. Tomorrow when we've worked through this and you're feeling a little bit better, let's move forward, let's evaluate, let's reflect. And I think having both back-to-back can be helpful. Absolutely.
0: Boom, boom. Boom. Fifth one for the viewers out there, social skills. This was a hard one for me to wrap my head around, Mm -hmm. Um, just as, just using, you know, brute force language like social skills, trustworthiness, connected and confident, because it feels like, it kind of feels now like we're in a hierarchy that you achieve the first four to arrive at the opportunity of social skills. And I take social skills to be able to, like, I'm reading Lauren's emotions about how I'm behaving right now in this moment. Or even if I'm, it's not about my action, but about Lauren's actions, I perceive that she's something more than angry or she seems Mm -hmm. like she's grieving something, right? It seems like a, a sort of intelligence about the other person was like the best way that I could frame it. Um, But right off the cuff, it was like, yeah, social skills, duh, like that makes sense. Uh, But in terms of emotional intelligence, am I onto something there in the way that I'm thinking about it?
3: I think what Lauren was speaking about just a minute ago of like, if I can have my emotions and sit with them and have this, it gives permission to others and I'm not gonna rescue you, I'm not gonna save you and then we're building community emotional intelligence and we're building that within our friendships and our relationships of, if I can get comfortable with Lauren's grief, she can get comfortable with mine. And then we have some vulnerability, some compassion, some increased empathy, all the way back to better self-awareness. We've then reflected together. We've done this thing that causes us to bond and have empathy and build that together.
2: Well, I think it plays, yeah, absolutely that. And I think it also plays into the authenticity piece, right? Mm-hmm. If I if I feel, you know, Brandon and I have a conversation and I don't want Brandon to see me angry, then I'm gonna change who I am so you don't have to see how I'm truly feeling in that moment. So it's, mm-hmm. it goes into this place of, okay, am I being authentic or am I just trying to please you? Am I trying to make, again, going back to the discomfort thing, am I just trying to make you comfortable so you don't feel uncomfortable with my sadness or anger or any of these things? It's, no, I want in my relationship to be like, hey, I'm not feeling well and be authentic in that. But I think a lot of times with emotional intelligence, when we either don't know how to feel emotions, we don't, there's not a lot of self-awareness, we kind of just do the chameleon thing. And I'm just gonna do what you need me to do. I'm gonna feel what you need me to feel. I'm gonna make sure that everyone in this room is comfortable because I can't manage my emotions to the point where like, I don't wanna make anyone else uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so it goes into like, how authentic are you being? And that that is a huge barrier with social skills. How lonely is it to feel something alone? (laughs) You know, like there has to be a moment where it's like, hey Brandon, I just, I do not feel right today. And have the empathy, have the understanding and have the idea that I'm not making you uncomfortable because I'm just being who I am in that
1: moment. Mm -hmm
0: absolutely this kind of reminds me i walked in rachel's office you're in there you're yawning or something i was like why don't you just take a nap and you're like no i'm not and i don't know why it's coming up it's I, i'm not trying to like read too much in the situations but i i felt like i what i said was why don't you just take a nap <laughs> just take a little 15 a little shut eye you know yeah so let's talk about it in the world i i think this is a crazy idea and uh with upper middle management in front of me, you can enforce it, (laughs) let Clint know about it for sure. But like, what would it be like to work in a company system where people could just acknowledge like I'm tired and they took 15 minutes to shut their eyes. Mm -hmm. And their team members knew about it as well too. So when Sam wakes up from her nap, the team knows at some point if I feel tired, Sam's got my back, right? And we work in these more like nurturing type environments. I might be getting way off base here. I guess I want to say that like, I can read emotions. I I can read that you were, you were sleepy. You were tired. I was so tired that day. I don't know if those are emotional states, but it looked emotional.
2: But Mm -hmm. I do love that about Peaks is that like I, you Mm -hmm. know, I, 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 as a leader, um, within the company, I still show my emotions. Like, you know, we were in the meeting the other day, we were all checking in and I got a little emotional and, you know, shared with them, there's some imposter syndrome coming up and I'm, this is how I'm working through it. This is how I'm, and to be able to have this space for my team to see their, you know, leader as vulnerable. Like it creates the ability for everybody else around you to say, Oh, it's safe for me to feel my emotions. And Mm -hmm. one thing that TJ, I think the best thing that TJ Woodward um, said to us when he was here was true self care is to just show your emotions, just Mm -hmm. to be where you're at in that moment, because yeah, we can do all the spa days in the world, but that doesn't get rid of the emotions. So let's just, say it and talk about it. And most of the time, that's very helpful. Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're getting big here at Peaks Recovery Center. She's name dropping. TJ Woodward was from Conscious Recovery, just want to point that out there. We get, we get, we get pretty big here at uh, Peaks Recovery Centers. Um, and I showed a motion in front of you this morning. Jason tried to hand me that business card. For the viewers out there, why do we still use business cards? Like, What's the value? Who's, if you're out there, think about it. Rolodex, do you have one? No but we keep giving each other business cards. Chief clinical officer tried to hand me one and my face must have looked like I'm about to Superman punch you to the moon right now. Disgust. (laughs) Don't do
2: that. Full disgust (laughs) on Brandon's face. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: It's a healthy place in the arena. So uh, going through this, the kids only have so much time out there on the Facebook, probably getting tired, getting tuckered out through their popcorn and soda by this point. So let's just skip to Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart uh, we're bringing this up as a book and a title. We use a lot of Brene Brown's work, uh, whether it's strategies or just information for patient care at the end of the day. Uh, but She has all the things to say about emotional states and uh, I think her work's profound. But Atlas of the Heart, um, Simon, how it can be helpful specifically for the viewers out there. You know, one of the three things, or three emotion states that she came up with in her research that commonly people associate with, and we talked about it a little in the beginning, happy, sad, and mad. How are you feeling I'm mad? How are you feeling I'm sad? How are you feeling I'm happy? Mm-hmm. And we just have that as a framework to describe our emotional states. But Brene Brown goes on to say, when we don't have language as expansive as our actual experiences, we force our experiences into languages, and then languages end up shaping what we are feeling uh, at the end of the day. And we can see how we can kind of you know, lose this. The, the, two, the two emotions that I know how to separate in that um, regard. Help me out, where am I going? End of the episode
3: two emotions
0: two emotions <laughs> the big ones Brené brown always say, uh shame versus guilt shame versus right yes. guilt, yeah. shame is i'm feeling like a bad person guilt mm-hmm. is i'm feeling like i did a bad thing right mm-hmm. and separating those out and a lot of people i think in our in my experience experience the shame side of something out of doing something because there's a consequence or a finger pointing or don't do that again type thing um, and we receive that differently, and then that can play out on trauma and that sort of thing, but this is a good example of when we really start to distinguish emotional states, they actually are separate and different, and it actually was my dad just trying to hold me accountable to something, and I should be receiving that, because running across the road at three years old across a highway or whatever can be dangerous, and I just didn't know that awareness, back to emotional intelligence, but uh, I know uh, at, at least one of you has read this book. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> in that regard, and so uh, you know, help the viewers out there dive into it and why they should be checking it out, and kind of the benefits within you know uh, treatment.
2: I love the book because it's not just a normal you know, open the book and you read through it. It's I like to look. I like to tell clients it's like the textbook of emotions. Like it helps you to really define what an emotion is, really understand it, and it goes back to the self awareness thing. I think you and I are very similar in the sense of, I need to understand something before I like dive into it and like start exploring it with myself. And, and, and I use it a lot with clients who are just very, very t- detached emotionally. So at least they can put words to their emotion, right? She has different sections in the book um, based on different kind of emotions and she breaks it down, you know, uh, comparison, joy, all of these different things that she really just kinda like puts words to what they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes a lot easier to start conceptualizing, oh, this is how it works for me. Oh, comparison, the thief of joy, that mm-hmm. makes sense. I don't feel joy a lot, like being able to relate to that. And I think um, Brene Brown's way of explaining emotions is pretty beautiful
3: and, and pretty relatable um, to the humane experience,
2: mm-hmm. I would say.
0: Absolutely.
3: I've listened to it on Audible. And so I haven't reading. it's like, kind of reading it's yeah, kind of I haven't way. done the textbook part of like really engaging with it. But the things that stuck out to me and you both know grief is near and dear to my heart is when she can talk about grief is love. And I think that was really helpful for me because grief doesn't have to be the scary thing. It can be an act or a feeling of love that doesn't always feel great.
0: Yeah. I, I love the concept of grief as a Mm -hmm. conversation especially under the philosophical umbrella because (laughs) i i can't remember i was talking this about in company culture recently but like what would it be like us to grieve the death of somebody before it happens before we are even aware that Mm -hmm. cancer is going to show up in one of our loved one's life or grieve you know uh, a relational fallout and those types of things as a build up to the reality that we are guaranteed these experiences in our lifetime Mm -hmm. and that feels because you're passionate about, just feels real loving to me, like a a personal sort of love to walk through grief and understand our time limitedness in this world, Mm -hmm. um, perceiving the loss of others uh, in real time, And, and why it's so big and important to me, because I feel like, again, we externalize these concepts of death and relational pitfalls and lacunas and stuff, you know, into hospital systems, or, you know, a counselor will take care of it out there and these types of things, versus really engaging with the reality of the world that we live in and grieving it in real time, not, in the way that they die, and will experience grief in the same way, but that mm-hmm. like, there is something about kind of the thought of like losing my wife. If I really sit with it, mm-hmm. um, I can start to actually grieve it in real time. And mm-hmm. so I just love that you brought that up. I don't know if you want to add anything more to that as a, as a lover of grief in the clinical setting. <laughs> I
3: think I'm a lover of it in the clinical setting because it gives us a backdoor to trauma. And it gives us that ability to say like, ooh, this grief feels so important. And it touches on the very important things, gets us right to our core values, right to our self-awareness. In a way that sometimes going through anger can't yeah so
2: i think too like this just idea of grief is in kind of like you said like this anticipatory thing is like every single one of us are gonna feel grief love mm-hmm. mad sad all of these fear all of these different things and so when do we get to a place where we embrace instead of just push it away when do we mm-hmm. get to a place where we i'm almost i, I I hate this in a little bit, but honor it. Like I, I am living the human experience at this point. Mm-hmm. I am. This is part of who I am because I, you know, you know, recently lost my grandpa because I loved him so much. The grief is hard but at least I have that love on the other end. And you know, at least I got to experience the love from him. Even when the grief is hard, there has to be some kind of balance. It goes, I I think we had talked about, I don't know exactly, so I might butcher it, but the Kevin McCauley thing with the pain versus pleasure is like, with that great pain, I definitely can feel that pleasure. And that's Mm -hmm. what Brene Brown says too, is that, I can't selectively numb. If I'm numbing my sadness, I'm numbing my happiness. If I'm numbing my shame, I'm numbing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not selective. You have to feel everything or you're going to feel nothing. And so being able to maybe embrace those emotions more and not vilify them, but just understand, like, this is a part of me and I am capable of moving through it, no no matter what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Beautifully stated. This is kind of rhetorical this is the last question in all of this but what are the consequences of not getting emotional intelligence right and I'm not talking about the emotional quotient and what it means <laughs> to be a better leader with emotional intelligence I'm talking about the consequences of personal wellness and a person achieving recovery from depression or re- achieving recovery from a substance use disorder um, what are the consequences if we miss this opportunity or we don't uh, engage in it or believe that we can actually do something like have emotional intelligence? How do we see that playing out in our clients' lives?
2: Well, it, it becomes unfortunate because then they'll never get to know themselves. I mean, I think mm-hmm. they, emotions are, make up so much of who we are and if, if we don't reach a place where we can find emotional intelligence, that self-awareness, then we're never going to be able to find a place where we truly know who we are. Find that identity piece, that purpose piece. It mm-hmm. becomes a little bit hopeless at times. So I think there, it's it, it's a huge cost, um, especially when we look at you know substance use. Am I going to relapse because I'm not emotionally in tune? Am mm-hmm. I going to lash out or you know even going into the suicidal place of like, I can't manage these so much that I want to take my own life to feel relief. Those are the costs of not really figuring out what emotional intelligence is and what my emotions are
3: and how they define me in a way. I couldn't have said it better. I think it leads to the loneliness, the isolation, the despair that we often are working to help clients work through so that it is manageable and we can work through that. I think it's lonely. If we can't know ourselves, we can't know others. And that's the most isolating thing. And it it feels sad.
1: Yeah.
2: It is something that I think we should value more as a society. Um, And again, going into a place of like maladaptive behaviors will not stop if you don't gain the self-awareness into your emotions and take the actions in order to manage and regulate them. It's just, they just can't stop, that's where they thrive, that's where depression thrives, that's where addiction thrives, that's where everything kind of unhealthy in our lives really clings onto and makes us believe that we're not good enough in a way.
0: Absolutely. My episodes on Finding Peaks are generally longer than the other (laughs) two hosts, and I just want to acknowledge that for the viewers and with you both here today, because for me, at the end of the day, and Alan Cook, we all know Alan Cook, he told me this long ago, he was like, Clinical work is not rocket science. And I absolutely engage and believe in that wholeheartedly. But I think what we do as a society, even though it's not rocket science, we tune into something and we see, oh, Brandon and Sam and Lauren are talking about emotional intelligence, self-awareness, duh, next thing, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about it and taking the time to discuss about it because it does matter. And even though it's outside the context of like, a complex math equation or whatever, it takes practice and it takes insights and it takes leaning into the information. And it's something that you genuinely have to explore to discover the wellness uh, at the end of the day. It is not a page turner. It is not an instant change in one's life to become aware of an emotion. Once we are aware of it, now we have to do the more difficult work on the other side of regulating that emotional state, moving through uh, our intrinsic motivators finding empathy for self and others um, and gaining those social skill sets along the way and this is a lifelong project for those who are out there so maybe an inconvenience at times to talk about things for an hour but at the same time like the issue matters and we're greatly lacking it in the community sense of things and the cultural sense of things and personally speaking when we move towards wellness we unfortunately reject it immediately Uh, In that regard, and move on to the next thing, or scroll the screen. And I just want to say that because I think this stuff matters. Um, And uh, for those out there, it hasn't always mattered to me. It hasn't always seemed to value. But the closer you get to these clinical people, the more and more you're like, damn it, those are things I got to work on. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. Turns out. Thank you, Clinical World, for that. So, and, and and with that, Sam, this is the first time we got to do this. Yes. Very thank exciting. You. Loved your insights uh, on all of this. Lauren, this is like third or fourth time doing this with you. Always enjoy your time and presence. Always a pleasure. Thank you both for being here. I'm always reminded of how many chats you receive in these time periods because your botches <laughs> are just dinging all the yeah. time. In that <laughs> the whole time. Uh, so, if anything, I hope we could get a little reprieve away from that. Chaos, that is the work life at times at Peaks Recovery. So for all the viewers out there, thanks for joining us. Questions at FindingPeaks.com. Thanks, Koov, in the back, keeping me on point with how the viewers find us. Thoughts, questions, ideas, send them to us because we're curious. For all you cold plungers out there, questions at (laughs) FindingPeaks.com. If you want to come in here and represent, i got a chair here for you. I'm down to tango. Let's do it, (laughs) all right? Uh, we got Chris on the social media, on the TikToks, Facebooks. Twitters, we, ad, we do all the things, and they're super positive out there. No politics, no confusion, just love. Find us out there on those things. Until next time, Brenda Burns, Chief Executive Officer of Peaks Recovery Center, signing off, love y'all, bye.